Hey, Cozy Robots, I'm Mike. I'm Victory. And I'm Grace. Welcome to the Cozy Robot Show, a program about empathetic skepticism. And uh, we'll let you know right up top tonight, we are doing an episode about mental health. And so this counts as your trigger warning. We are going to talk about some really difficult topics, suicidality, uh, sexual abuse, uh, childhood trauma, some really potentially activating discussions. And so here's what I'd like to ask you to do. That's take care of yourself. Know that this program is here to support you. And that means you can pause whenever you'd like. You can leave the episode whenever you want. You can come back later if you feel like it. But at any point, if you find yourself feeling activated or triggered or anxious, feel free to take a break, okay? You're in total control over your experience here. Because on a program about empathetic skepticism, Mental health is really, really critical to the kind of conversations that we want to have about learning to understand our world and understand our feelings. So we thank you so much for being here live right now on YouTube. We're live on Facebook. We're live on Twitch. We're live on Twitter via Periscope, which is a lot of fun. Of course, the show will also be on a replay on Apple Podcasts and Spotify. Spotify, and Instagram TV. Wow, all the things. Wherever you're watching or listening, feel free to like, to comment, to share. Oh, and the show is live, if you're watching live. Uh, and that means we can see your comments in real time and do enjoy that. So welcome, as always, to the Cozy Robot Show. Grace and Victory, so good to see you, as always. So good to see so, you too, Mike. Yeah, so good to see you guys. I was we thinking just- that... Oh. Victory, please. Oh, my gosh. Please. Oh, thank you. I was going to say that I think we should start out tonight's episode with a little bit of a mental health check-in. Before we started recording, Mike, you were talking about getting back into the swing of post-pandemic living in Mm -hmm. many ways. Mm -hmm. Uh, Could you talk about that a little bit? Well, you know, I am uh, lucky in that uh, I have had my first of two COVID vaccine shots. I get my second one this week. And there are a number of friends in my life who are fully vaccinated. They're either two weeks after their second shot of a two-dose regimen or four weeks after their first shot of uh, the Johnson & Johnson vaccine. And so uh, I'm able to do something as of like (laughs) this week, like the weekend we just had that I've been able to do in like 12 months. Let's see people that aren't Madison, Macy, and Jenny, my daughters and my wife. And um, so we saw, you know, several friends uh, in sequence and in very, very small groups. Um, all vaccinated people, but uh, it was uh, just wonderful. I just don't know how to describe. Um, I expected it to be more strange to be around people again, and I almost feel like as a an autistic person, this phase of the pandemic favors my strengths because mm-hmm. large group gatherings are still. Uh, very unwise 
right? So really all we can do is to get together in small groups. And I love small groups. <laughs> That's like my wheelhouse. To the point, you know, ever since I um, was hospitalized with heart disease uh, at the request of my doctor, I've uh, had a sleep tracker. I wear my watch at night and monitors my heart rate. And we get uh, metrics on how my heart is doing while I sleep. And I got a message today about 10 a.m., from that application saying, hey, what happened? Your your sleep rate heart dip was the lowest it's been in 14 months. And don't hear that backwards. The lowest, that's good. The more your heart rate dips when you sleep, the higher quality your sleep, typically the less anxiety you're experiencing and, and kind of the best health you're in. And I couldn't help but notice that that information followed a weekend where I got to see friends again. And... Um, you know, it's giving me a sense of hope, even with the very scary news we have, especially in the Midwest around B117. Uh, it did give me hope that we are, in the United States at least, finally on the right track with COVID. And, uh, and I'm feeling, I'm experiencing that uh, in a very positive way in my personal mental health. How about y'all? Notice I ended with a question. Good job, Mike. Well done, Mike. <laughs> a wonderful transition. Um, Grace, uh, tell us how you are. Okay. I I recently had a conversation with... Um, I'm living at home right now uh, because of the pandemic. And also, interestingly, because of my mental health uh, about a year ago. Um, but... Uh, recovering and, you know, all is well, all is well. But recently I was having a conversation with my mom about how being in your 20s and living at home and how the pandemic affects every one of my friends who is in their 20s, it can be really hard. Yeah. It can be really isolating and you just get this feeling. I know that there's not like necessarily things we're supposed to be doing as 20 year olds, but it does feel like I'm missing out on going out on the town of and yeah. that kind of thing. And occasionally it becomes really stressful, disheartening. Mm. That being said, I have found a lot of solace recently in video games and the escapism of playing games has been doing wonders for my mental health, actually. So yeah. that's where I am. Victory, where are you mentally? I feel like we are going to talk about that, but I feel like we must remark on Mike's appendage that just made an appearance. Oh, we got to talk about it. We're, we're talking <laughs> well, about your you thumb. Two, one thumb <laughs> up and one splint up. <laughs> we do have to talk about that. Mike has had an accident, but he's okay. Always. That's just a given. Has, has time gone by that Mike has broken something? <laughs> For those of you listening, Mike has a splint on his thumb. Yeah. In I, case I, it's... I, I, I wish there was a good story. I just... <laughs> no, you were a fighting a bear. No, it's a good story. His wife was concerned about him doing a certain thing. <sighs> I was doing some backyard garden stuff. I like plants. 
So I have a bougainvillea <laughs> that I was trying to secure to the fence so that it'd be good when the winds come. And Jenny was on the phone with my mom on FaceTime, and they were both really concerned I was on the ladder and thought I should call for help for someone because I shouldn't be on the ladder because I'm apparently, they think, very accident prone. <laughs> and I was like, I'm literally just like drilling like three screws into a fence and securing wire around a plant. This is not a high risk operation. And so I got done with like a great sense of satisfaction. And I was like, see, I didn't hurt myself and snap the ladder closed oh with my thumb my in the ladder. And then I didn't want mom or Jenny to know I'd hurt myself because I didn't want to get and I told you so. And so even though my thumb was literally stuck in the ladder oh, God. and the ladder was latched itself shut, I like lifted the ladder and started to walk over to put it away <laughs> and like really on the sly unlatched it and got my thumb loose. Ugh. And uh, and uh, and then the next day it was like purple and shaped like a sausage. Oh man, pride is so funny. It's very powerful. Um, I usually don't. Yes. I'm usually not super prideful, but in that particular instance, I did not like them telling me I shouldn't be on the ladder. Oh yeah, and, I understand. Uh, I would it, have done the same thing. I am very just, I hated it like so. <laughs> it wasn't like the next time I got on the ladder. It was no. like literally putting the ladder away. <laughs> they said I shouldn't be on. Yeah. I mean, we could make a case for they cursed it, but that's a different, that's a different show. <laughs> that is the superstition show. And yeah. I was more excited. The reason I gave a metal thumbs up is uh, I also love gaming. And so I was just excited that, uh, that Grace is getting her life right and getting into the habits. Getting my life right, getting into gaming. Uh, is there any kind of escapism for you, Victory? Like in this time of isolation, are you finding solace in books or... Anything like that? Yeah, I can't say that it's anything new, but I uh, just through the entire pandemic, I'm a big uh, audiobook gal. Mm -hmm. Oh, yeah. Um, and like many women in America, I love true crime shows, both fictional go. and documentary. Uh, so, um, yeah, just a lot of Netflix. Um, <laughs> but what I was going to say. <laughs> I just I have to show this. My mom is on the stream. And said, I'm not going to say anything. <laughs> we see you. I love it. I, that's wonderful. I I um, listen to a ton of podcasts, a lot of them true crime. I totally know what you mean by that. If you, I mean, the SNL sketch that came out a couple weeks ago uh, really nailed it. Uh, for, oh, those, yeah. for those of you who haven't seen it, I recommend you go check it out. It really... Uh, Nailed it. Anyways, uh, my pan my post pandemic recovery is oddly different than Mike's in that I am naturally a very social person, more social mm -hmm. than Mike is, um, and I have had a <laughs> harder <bar>. time. <laughs> low, bar. <laughs> low bar, he says. Low bar. <laughs> low bar. Uh, I've had a harder time reintegrating. We we spent a little time with um, another vaccinated family and it was hard for me to make that mental leap that it was okay. I did feel, you know, for the first 30 minutes or so, I felt really nervous mm -hmm. and uncomfortable. And, um, we did two errands over the weekend. We went to Costco and Home Depot, real exciting stuff that you don't want to do in your twenties. Mm. Um, <laughs> and it was weird. It was weird. Not, I mean, anyway, it, yeah, it's, it's a mental leap, but I know that, 
I intellectually know that it's safe. I guess it's my feelings that take hold. I don't know. I don't know what it is, but yeah. And the bigger, the bigger thing is just how it's affected friendships. Like I have friendships that exist on Marco Polo, which I don't know if you guys know that app. It's a, it's a really fun like video app. Oh, fun. Uh, Yeah. And so my friendships exist on Marco Polo. And so it's very, very strange to think of like actually having in-person friendships again. And there's a lot of friendships that we've just lost touch. Not that we're not friends, but we've just, you know, there's, there's been nothing. So just the whole friendship thing, I've been thinking about it a lot um, and feel sad and nervous about how it's all going to unfold. And I'm sure it's going to be fine, but it's just, I'm a really social person. So it's just very Mm -hmm. strange to, uh, to realize that it's going to be kind of rocky and weird. Mm. Yeah, absolutely. And we're not the only ones who feel that way. Um, Misty on Instagram asked, like, did you like that transition? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and I have been working on these transitions. Um, yeah. So Misty on Instagram asks, well, it's more of a comment at the beginning. Okay. I'm single, which has been really hard during the pandemic. I'm in a Mm. province in Canada where we have been on lockdown since November. I feel Mm. so alone and tired. Any advice? Mm. Gosh. Uh, Solidarity first. Lonely and tired. That's uh, my 2020 and 2021 memoir. I mean, uh, even, you know, I'm socially withdrawn. And after I finally got to a point, I, you know, between the financial uncertainty and the utter isolation, you know, I went through a period of, of, of the pandemic where I just, I didn't know if I was going to make it. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and I would just start by saying, Misty, that's really normal. It, it is the um, adaptive and appropriate thing for a human person to feel when they are isolated and under constant stress and anxiety, right? It changes the way that our bodies and our brains work when we're isolated that long and when we're under that much stress. It affects our cognitive abilities. It affects our emotional resilience. It affects our ability to process things. Uh, It affects the way we metabolize food. I mean, there really isn't a part of of the human experience that is untouched by isolation and anxiety. So the way I kind of started to relate to it is I thought of it like... um, I was on a mission for NASA. Now, that's a very American thing, the National Aeronautics Space Administration, um, National Aeronautics and Space Administration. But, uh, you know, you could say the the ESA or, or any of the various uh, space programs around the, the world. But basically that for some reason, to save the Earth, families had to get on their own little space station and orbit the Earth for a year. <laughs> Mm, and then we could come home and our job while we're in the space station was to survive that's it to survive and do our best to keep ourselves healthy so when we got back we could all rebuild the earth together and um 
The really hard thing about this part of the pandemic is we won't all get out of, we all kind of went into it on a very similar time frame. We're not going to get out of it. There's within any country, there's going to be variants from community to community when things are appropriate to open back up. There's going to be a lot of difference between different countries. Um, and that makes it harder, you know, because here I am, I'm in California. California went from being like really one of the worst places in the world in this winter so like this spring, moving to summer, like in kind of one of the best positions in the world, which has been really disorienting for Californians in the most wonderful way. Uh, but I can imagine, you know, I, I think back to periods when it was so bad here, and I would look at how it was other places, and that made it more demoralizing for me, mm-hmm. right? The fact that like, you know, I'd have friends in different parts of Europe, uh, or friends in, in Australia or New Zealand who are like, yeah, no, we had like a concert. <laughs> like, what? I'm literally afraid to get the mail. Um, and that that is playing a factor as well. So what we need to know is, number one, we are still on this kind of space station orbit the Earth business where our job is to survive until it's safe to land again. And the other thing that's true everywhere is we're all closer to landing than we were, than we are taking off, right? We really are uh, the vaccines globally. All the vaccines are great. All of them. The Russian vaccine is great. The Chinese vaccine is great. The Oxford vaccine is great. The J&J vaccine is great. The Pfizer vaccine is great. The Moderna vaccine is great. Historically speaking, these are all amazing vaccines made on incredible timeframes. They are very, very safe. They are very, very effective. What we're seeing with monoclonal antibody treatments is incredible. We get more and more better news. Recently, we found out one of the... uh, Monoclonal antibodies that had to be done with an IV infusion is now going to be available as a traditional injection. That's going to be another thing that makes it easier and faster to open things up, get things back to normal around the world. So um, I'd say, remember, it's normal. And there really is a light at the end of the tunnel that's not an oncoming train. Like there's... In most places, sometime between this fall and next spring, we're going to have some degree of normalcy back. That means maybe not, you know, concerts, maybe not big events, but at least like gathering with friends, uh, you know, shopping trips, mass, small gatherings, mass religious service attendance, masked weddings, uh, and we won't have that total isolation. And the other thing I would say, Uh, When case rates are low enough in your community, now that's a big caveat. Case rates need to be low enough in your community. But when case rates are low enough in your your community, find a small number of people who have a similar level of behavioral precaution that you have, and then just create a little pod. Over the summer, I had a little COVID pod in Los Angeles, and it was great, and it was good for our mental health. And then cases took off, and I was like, we're out of the pod. (laughs) 
<laughs> this is now too big a risk. The, the cases are too high. Um, but, you know, if your cases are low enough in your community, it's okay to kind of form, you know, a small little social group together. The more self-contained, the better, uh, obviously. And do those things to kind of take care of yourself because we all get tired of um, Zooming, FaceTiming, Google Meeting, our social experiences. There's something that's just not the same about it and our brains know it and it helps and kind of exhausts us. And so as as we're able to safely be around other people, I think you'll find that also to be um, very restorative. And then, of course, I, I think this is obvious. As soon as you are eligible to be vaccinated in your community, sign up for an appointment and get vaccinated. It will not only immediately improve your quality of life, it will also protect vulnerable people who cannot be vaccinated because of health conditions. Let's stay on the topic of COVID. And before I read this next question, this is... Just a trigger warning again for suicidal ideation, suicide. Um, and I'd also like to preface this question by saying the National Suicide Prevention Lifeline is available 24-7. Um, and the languages include English and Spanish. And that number is 800-273-8255. And that number is also in the description of the stream. Okay, here we go. Nathan on our Discord asks... Mike, I saw this week that numbers from the CDC indicate that suicide rates last year actually decreased mm -hmm. compared to previous years. This was during lockdown and certainly goes against many of the narratives we heard throughout the pandemic. Given the steep rise in mental health crisis, crises, everyone was expecting the opposite. The reasons seem unclear. What do you think may have led to this decrease in suicides during the pandemic? Oh, a little pet peeve of mine. When uh, during the lockdown, I would discuss the necessity of lockdown to save lives. I would get pushback, typically from white evangelicals, that what about the mental health cost? What We're going to have a mass epidemic of death by suicide if, if we keep these lockdowns in place. And, um, and I said, I am obviously concerned about mental health. I have not seen any data supporting the notion that we're seeing a rise in suicides. Where are you getting that information? I'm like, well, it's obvious. <laughs> Public health matters often don't follow our intuition, uh, which is why it's important to take a data-driven approach to public health policy. So we're in a situation, we've got this deadly virus. We know the virus will kill a lot of people, and our goal is to not have those people die. And, uh, and then sure enough, we, we saw a decline in death by suicide. And um, the most obvious hypothesis I have comes from a, a researcher named Thomas Joyner, who came up with uh, three emotional cognitive factors uh, that are predictive for risk of uh, death by suicide and suicidal ideation. And those three factors, uh, and I'll paraphrase here, are um, I'm a burden on others. Um, I'm afraid to die. I'm not afraid to die, excuse me. And I'm alone. So anyone who kind of has those three thoughts as an ongoing um, loop in their 
conscious experience. This is a very high risk of death by suicide. And I certainly can say in my experience, when I have uh, struggled with suicidality, those are three very familiar thoughts to me. And what has been interesting about lockdown and the pandemic is even though I got very depressed early in the pandemic, I never crossed over into suicidality. Well, um, I was very miserable, but I didn't feel like a burden on others and I did not feel alone in my suffering. I knew mm -hmm. that when my income just vanished overnight because of it, I don't know if people know this, but historically, I've been in the events business. That's how I make my income is selling tickets to events. I travel and I go on stage and people buy tickets. And that's how I pay, literally, like, buy groceries. And so that wasn't possible. Um, and so, I, you know, I was like, well, what are we going to do? And I couldn't see people. And I'd just been going through all this kind of mental health work, really intensive therapy. And it wasn't a good time <laughs> The the kind of the plaster was still wet there, so it wasn't really a good time to uh, be removed from those support systems. But when I felt so miserable, I always knew, not only in my mind, but like in my belly, almost everyone's going through this right now. I never felt like I was the odd one or the alone one, or I was, if I was upset by what was going on, I was somehow a burden because I everybody I talked to. I mean, every person I talked to was really struggling. And so there's almost been this solidarity of a shared, deeply traumatic expense that, yes, it is traumatic. And yes, we have significant mental health challenges related to it, not only now, but for the next decade. Um, I am far more concerned about death by suicide now that lockdowns are ending than I was when I was during them. Because when we're all locked down and we're all kind of miserable, we're all together. But when some people start bouncing back faster than mm -hmm. other people, when mm -hmm. some people's Instagrams start to look normal again, when these kind of factors come into play, there's going to be that greater potential for people, I think, this is my hypothesis, to start feeling alone again. Like, it's just me. We've been alone together for a year. And alone together really isn't the same as being alone. So... um, I think that means we need to be really intentional about reaching out to other people. We need to be intentional about reaching out when we need support. We need to be intentional about asking other people if they need support because, you know, wouldn't it be great if we kept, we had a, a pretty consistent um, rise in death rates by suicide for many years and, uh, Maybe, 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 maybe the shared difficulty of this pandemic could make us all feel more open about sharing difficult challenges with other people. And I'd love to see if we can keep that uh, decline in death by suicide as something that sticks around even when we open things back up. What a great question. That was a great question. 
And I think it's time to keep the lights on. We're a little bit early for that, but... Okay. Well, don't skip, everybody. This one's uh, uh, an especially special uh, set of announcements. So see you in uh, just a second. All right. We've told you before that the biggest sponsor of the Cozy Robot Show is... The Cozy Robots, you. <laughs> the Cozy Robot Show is named after you. Empathetic skeptics, skeptics, empathetic skeptics. I don't know what a skeptic is. Empathetic skeptics who are working to make the world a better place by working on themselves. And when you become a Cozy Robot, there's all kinds of benefits. You can learn how to do that, by the way, by visiting CozyRobots.com. And I just got to do a little housekeeping here. You know, uh, most of the Cozy Robots, the people who send a little money every month to make this show possible, don't redeem their benefits. So the first thing I'm going to tell you, if you're already a Cozy Robot, please go sign up for a Discord account and then link your Patreon and Discord account so you can join the Cozy Robots private Discord server where there are hundreds of us who get together and have a good time. What do we do? Uh, we play video games together. Uh, we have topical discussions 24 hours a day, seven days a week. Uh, we have an after party every week after this program. Uh, and we have a book club. And wow, I am so excited to share with you that we have picked out the next six books for our book club. So uh, we get together every other week and we discuss books that we're reading through. We give ourselves four weeks for each book. So we kind of have a halfway discussion and then a complete discussion on a book. And we uh, have amazing books that were selected by members of the community. So when you join the Cozy Robots, it's very participatory. So the book club is a great example of how we do everything. The people in the community nominate the books. And then the people in the community vote on the books, and then that's what we choose. And here's another thing, can I just tell you that's wonderful? We've had great discussions about what books we should even read. There have been amazing discussions around intersectional understandings of identity and what books are good and what books are good but has some exclusionary tones and what books are just like really exclusionary and we should avoid. I love the whole thing. It's all the supportive parts of the internet without the trolls. So we're going to do The Body is Not an Apology, The Radical Power of Self-Love by Sonia Renee Taylor. I'm really looking forward to that. Uh, we're going to do Eager to Love by Richard Rohr. Very, very, very excited about that as well. Uh, we're doing Braiding Sweetgrass, uh, Indigenous Wisdom, Scientific Knowledge, and Teaching of Plants by Robert Robin Wall Kimmerer. Uh, this, I think, is the one I'm most excited to read. We're going to do uh, Ta-Nehisi Coates' novel, The Water Dancer. Uh, this is uh, another one I'm particularly excited about. You'll notice we're doing a mix of fiction and nonfiction books. I don't have it to show you, but we're doing The City We Became by N.K. Jemison. It comes out in June, and we'll be reading together in July. And uh, we're reading uh, The Book of Longings by Sun Monk Kidd. 
uh, which um, I've heard good things about, but haven't read. And so you'll see half of those are fiction and half of those are nonfiction. So if you'd like to read those books with me and other Cozy Robots and discuss them together, please go to CozyRobots.com and sign up. And again, if you're already a Cozy Robot, go ahead and get what you're already paying for uh, by signing up for Discord and linking that to your Patreon account. Then also this week, so appropriate as we discuss, Mental Health is our sponsor, BetterHelp. BetterHelp is an online counseling service that connects you with licensed professional counselors. It's the easiest and most convenient way that I know of to get mental health support. And over 1 million people have signed up for BetterHelp. When you sign up, you'll fill out a questionnaire And then BetterHelp will connect you to a counselor who specializes in whatever you may be working through, like depression, stress, anxiety, relationship challenges, sleep issues, trauma, anger, family conflicts, LGBTQIA matters, grief, and self-esteem. And again, they will find a licensed therapist for you. One of the hardest things about getting therapy is finding a therapist, and BetterHelp finds a therapist for you. And if for any reason it's not a fit, BetterHelp will find another therapist for you, which I just love. I love it so much that I use it every day. And for listeners and viewers of the Cozy Robot Show, BetterHelp is going to offer 10% off your first month. All you have to do is go to betterhelp.com slash Cozy Robot. So why not get started today? Visit betterhelp.com slash Cozy Robots. Right, Mike. This next question um, is another heavy one. Everybody uh, listening or watching right now, this trigger warning is for sexual violence and child abuse. So remember what Mike said at the top of the episode, be kind to yourself. Mm-hmm. If you need to pause, please do. All right. Anonymous asks, how do I convince myself that I'm clean after years of daily sexual violence and abuse? Mm-hmm. One of the repercussions of the trauma is that I developed an obsession, an obsessive compulsion to be clean, particularly after interaction with my abusers or things that remind me of the abuse as a way for my mind to hold a boundary my body did not have the power to enforce. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I've sought healing through many means, including extensive therapy work, medications, and other health adjustments, but the compulsion still greatly impacts my daily life sometimes debilitatingly so. Is there anything else I can do to try to reroute this mental pathway of compulsion and truly clean and fr- and truly be clean and free from sexual trauma? I just want relief. Yeah, wow, okay. Uh, well, thank you, first of all, for being brave so many times. You've been brave when you've sought support and help from mental health professionals and you've named the abuse that you've faced and you've made connections. You've made a connection between some compulsive behaviors and trauma and abuse. And you were brave when you made that connection. And then you were brave when you sent a question uh, anonymously over the internet to a, a podcast And I hear someone working to take ownership of their life and ownership 
of their outcomes. And so I hope that with all of the really unfair, really unkind, really cruel pain that you've handled, that was not your fault, that was done to you, that happened to you, I hope you can take a moment And even though, you know, as you've said, these compulsive behaviors around cleanliness and hygiene um, impair your quality of life and can be debilitating, I still hope you can take a moment to be proud of yourself for surviving, for taking ownership of your circumstances, and for seeking the support that you deserve. Because you do deserve to be supported. And let me be honest, as your friendly neighborhood deep-voiced podcaster, I'm a podcaster, not a mental health expert. In your question, I hear that you have already spoken with people wildly more qualified than me to talk about this. And I appreciate that you trusted me enough to even ask such a profound and important question. So all I can do in that situation is say like, well, what would I say to a friend or what would I say to me? Um, I am a sexual assault survivor. And so some of those patterns of um, restoring a sense of ownership over my own body are familiar to me. I take take a moment for myself there. Mm-hmm. Um There's two channels of recovery in situations like these. There is the deep work. The deep work is what? It is dealing with the trauma. It is dealing with the deep feelings. It is dealing with the emotions. And then there's another track, and that's the behavioral track. And the behavioral track is not as um, heavy a work in the therapy office, but ends up requiring a lot more of our time and attention outside the therapist's office, right? So um, related to my own trauma, uh, I'd like to give you an example. Uh, for, for, for some time, I would be, come home and be confused. I even saw a doctor about it because I have body hair and there'd be patches of missing hair. And I thought I might have like a, a skin condition or a fungus or something that was causing these bald patches that would then like grow back and then a different bald patch would show up. And I just could not figure out what was going on. And it really mystified me. And one day I was sitting in my office at work. This was some years ago when I had an office job. And I noticed my arm was kind of stuck in my shirt like while I was working on something. And I had to kind of get my arm loose. And I noticed that once I got my arm loose, I was holding scissors. And I could not figure out why in the world I was holding scissors. It didn't make any sense to me. I didn't remember picking up the scissors. I certainly didn't know why I had the scissors. 
But as I went to put the scissors away in my drawer, I noticed there was just a little patch of hair on the carpet by my office chair. And I went, oh my gosh, was I cutting my hair? And how could I be aware of this? And I just have to tell you the deep sense of panic I felt. Because I thought like, oh my gosh, I'm having an, un- am I like blacking out what's happening? Yeah. Uh, my, I, I was seeing a therapist at the time. It was a, about a week until my next appointment. So uh, between that time, I noticed a lot. I would catch myself with these scissors. Well, mystery solved. That's why I have the bald spots. And I kind of was so nervous to tell my therapist. I thought I might... Uh, that might be a danger to myself and others kind of thing. I thought I might be committed. I just, I'm telling you this, not to center myself, but to let you know, I was very troubled by this behavior and very afraid. So I was afraid to even tell my therapist, but I did. And I mean, I cried. I was so upset. And um, and my therapist told me this was like not a big deal. <laughs> it was like really, really well known. Frankly, in the same way, that links between obsessive compulsive behaviors around uh, cleanliness are really well known and well understood link with sexual trauma. Mm-hmm. Like no therapist you talk to is gonna be like, "What? I can't believe that." It's really well worn territory. In the same way that my kind of compulsive haircutting was, I said, "Well, I can't have this. Like I can't do things I'm not aware of." I can't, how can I fix something I'm not aware of? What on earth am I going to do? And she said, uh, take the scissors out of your office. <laughs> I said, what? And she said, just take your scissors out of your office. Just get all the scissors out of your office completely. And I thought, it can't be that easy. But I took all the scissors out of my office. And then do you know what I found myself noticing? Is how often I was opening drawers looking for scissors. But that little moment gave me awareness that there was an interrupt there and I could have a conversation with myself. Oh, wow. Apparently, like 30 or 40 times a day, I try to find scissors. Now, I am not comparing my compulsive haircutting to your compulsive behaviors around cleanliness. They are not equivalent. I only say my story to illustrate this gap between the deep work and then a pragmatic behavioral solution. The pragmatic behavioral stuff can act as like a band-aid while we do the deeper work. Do you see the difference? So um, I would say you've done EMDR, keep doing that. If you can find a therapist who specializes in emotionally focused, trauma-informed practices like AEDP, Accelerated Experiential uh, Dynamic Psychotherapy, uh, which does a lot of trauma reprocessing work, of which EMDR is a single tool in the tool set, I would encourage you on that. But then also look at behavioral interventions like cognitive behavioral therapy and kind of systems work, occupational systems work that can help create awareness around the patterns. And then ultimately, even as you do those things, I think this is most important. Congratulate yourself on surviving. Congratulate yourself that this compulsion, which, yes, interferes in your quality of life, is how you survived in the past 
and continue to survive horrific abuse that is not your fault. My work for the last two to three years of my life has been learning to be thankful for the things I've been most ashamed of my whole life, my compulsive patterns, my compulsive eating, the symptoms that are related to autism spectrum disorder, my social anxiety. All of these things are pieces of a mosaic, and that mosaic is a depiction of something beautiful. And that's that I have survived a very difficult life. And you have too. So no matter what approach you use, I hope you can surround it all with patience for yourself, appreciation for yourself, and most of all, love for yourself. Ooh. Yeah. Thank you, Anonymous, for being really, really brave in sending that question in. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I think you did a lot of good for a lot of people watching and who are going to listen to this episode later. All right. Let's transition into something a little more light. Invisible Hearths asks... I want to set a goal for writing 15 minutes a day. What can I do to mentally optimize the beginning of a new <laughs> creative discipline? Play. Uh, gosh, there's this terrible thing that people who want to make creative work uh, almost always do so because they appreciate creative work. And that is, it's a, it's a terrible curse. <laughs> mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So um, if I could find them, I've really toyed with like posting all of the shit that I wrote trying to <laughs> learn to write. So long before I started writing my book, I started writing every day thinking I was writing on my book. And what I was actually doing was teaching myself to write. And... Um, they all share in common that, like, uh, here's the things I would do. I would get up in the morning early before work, and I'd sit down to write, and there would be, like, a blank page, and it would terrify me. And then I would, like, be like, well, I got to write something, and I would write a sentence, and then I was like, wow, that might be the worst thing anyone's ever written. And I would delete, 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 delete. And, uh... And then that made me like more anxious to write another sentence, right? <laughs> uh, so then I learned you just had to like not hit delete and just keep <laughs> writing. And so then I would keep writing and then I would write for like several days or several weeks and I would get some large volume of text and I would finally go back and read it and I'd be like, there is literally nothing here worth keeping. Nothing. And... Uh, well, let me tell you something. You might be, oh, you're probably too critical. Mm -mm. I've gone back and read that stuff. It was bad. It was bad. I didn't know how to write. I knew good writing. Now, I could read something and tell you what was good writing and what was not. A, 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 a skill, unfortunately, I still have to this day. Mm 
And I can also tell you, as someone who's written two books and written for major newspapers and, um, you know, done, done serious writing, um, I can still read really good writing that makes me think I should never write again. That still happens to me. <laughs> but what I have now that I did not used to have is an awareness that the way we become good at a craft, uh, especially a creative craft, is by making stuff that's not good enough for our own sense of what's acceptable. And the more we can learn to not let go of our sense of taste, but let go of our performance pressure, the more rapid that path is to creating work that you're satisfied with. Because it kind of goes from like, you create work you hate, to work you're like, yeah, I guess it's fine, to like, yeah, well, this is pretty good. I've never gotten to like, wow, I'm an amazing writer, but I have gotten to like, oh yeah, that was, uh, that was fine, it's pretty good, it's pretty good. Um, and the way I did that was play. I just sit down and my goal is what? To have a good time with the craft itself. I don't think so much about the finished project anymore. I just think about this sentence, think about who I'm writing to, and I just kind of play around because I realize what, like, there's no shortage of words. <laughs> I'm not going to run out of words. There's not like a, a, an account somewhere, and when I hit zero, there's no words left. I can literally just sling words at the page all I want. I've been doing more and more um, fictional work, not just the nonfiction work I've been known for. And the best stuff I've been involved with has been when, frankly, Victor and I sit down and just kind of play and pretend almost like you would when you're a child. <laughs> and um, that kind of fun in the process shows up on the page when you're done. Now, not all writing is fun. I've, I've certainly dredged up some difficult things from the depths of the heart on the page as well. And on those days, I can tell you, you can probably look through one of my books and tell when I was sobbing over the keyboard. There's probably no question what those passages were or when I cried not out of grief, but out of a, a, a shared um, reverence or joy for the moment the reader and I were going to have together. And the bridge from where you are to that, I think is the freedom to feel like we can play. Uh, Zay Frank has a quote that says, perfectionism looks great in his shiny shoes, but he's kind of an asshole and no one wants to talk to him at their party. And uh, the quicker you can train yourself to kick perfectionism away and just play, the better. That also means for most, for many crafts, we have to separate the act of creation from the act of revision. That's certainly true for the written word. I do not allow myself to edit when I am creating. I create. I can edit later. And um, and I can and must revise. I'm actually a terrible editor, but a pretty good reviser. And uh, now that might not apply to all disciplines. I, I don't know about sculpting or painting. I think those are more um, that you kind of have to play the whole time, I think. But you asked about writing, and I think I think let yourself play, and then also like, damn it, commit. Hmm. People like uh, goof around too much with writing, and that, by goof around, I don't actually mean be silly. I mean like goof around by like 
being in the anguish of like, am I a writer or whatever? <laughs> like, uh, and just like, don't be so precious. Just write stuff. Um, but, uh, the quote, I don't remember. Who's, I've seen it attributed to multiple people. But I only write when I'm inspired, but fortunately I'm inspired every morning at 9 a.m. It's very much <laughs> my approach when I have to write. Uh, when I say have to write, I love to write. Um, but I, I make sure that when I'm writing, I write on a regular schedule. And frankly, at this point in my life, even when I'm not writing for work, I'm still writing. I write all the time. Also, and I don't know, you didn't ask if you were doing nonfiction or fiction, but I have found that role-playing games, tabletop role-playing games, have been an incredible playground to learn to play with writing. Because when you write a campaign for some characters you learn, or for some players, you learn very quickly not to get overly precious with your story because some players are going to have their own spin on it. Or if you're a player... <laughs> Uh, to not get overly invested in one outcome for your character because uh, you're going to encounter other people in there uh, in your game. And that's a fantastic way to kind of practice the play part of creativity. Nice. I would be curious. I don't know if you'll be okay with this, but Victory is a prolific writer. I wanted to ask. I wonder if Victor would share any right. of her hard-earned hard wisdoms. Well, I'll tell you, I've read a lot of people's writing, and I know, uh, I know, uh, best-selling uh, authors of, of of fiction and nonfiction. I also personally know really successful uh, writers and directors in Hollywood, and and Victory's as good as any of them. Um, so I wonder if uh, if you'd be willing to share your thoughts as well. Well, thank you. For those affirmations. Um, <laughs> Victor's I had to learn am... a lot about accepting affirmation working. With you. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it's, true. it's true. The script like, says. I'm just, I'm just trying to not hide under the table right now. Um, <laughs> I mean, I'm still, I am still on the same journey. Mm -hmm. uh, it, it still feels weird to call myself a writer. Um, I definitely feel safer, uh, behind the creative producer title for sure. Um, but everything you said is true to my experience. The more I play and, uh, not edit while I'm writing, the better it goes. And, um, you know, and then going back and, and doing the editing later, uh, the less I judge myself, the better it is, but. I, yeah, it's still, I mean, I don't know any creative person that is like, I am a badass artist, you know, like yeah, I feel I like every, that's actually, there are, there are some out there, uh, but that's like a different, that's a different mm -hmm. conversation. But I think most people who are creative struggle with insecurity and self-doubt and um i certainly certainly do so i still feel like i'm getting my sea legs mm. um as as an artist but i will say um i have worked through not the whole book um but julie cameron's is it julie cameron julia cameron's the artist way uh mm. people recommended it to me for years and it seemed like 
a cheesy self-help book or something. And then I finally picked it up and it really is terrific. Um, and I've started working through it a couple of times and I've never finished it because I end up getting involved in something that I started writing for it. And then I get mm-hmm. like taken away in that. So that, that has been, um, really helpful if you're looking for someone listening is looking for a guide to walk them through, uh, um, looking at your, your inner sensor, your inner critic, uh, and releasing your creative freedom. But yeah, I'm still mm-hmm. learning. I'm still early on the journey, but thank you for your kind words, Mike. Hmm. They have the nice uh, side effect of just being true. <laughs> well, I think I, well, I would like to do a mental check-in before we end the show tonight I think it's appropriate given the topic and everything we've discussed tonight. And um, yeah, how are you, Victory? How are you feeling? We discussed some heavy topics. Where are you? Uh, how? Yeah. I these were heavy topics, but um, I have some some experience with lots of the topics that we we talked about tonight. Some personal experience, and so. Um, it was, it was personally sort of challenging. Um, and then also feeling sad for people who are going through this. Um, but definitely I've noticed that my heart has been beating a little faster and my temperature is a little high Mm -hmm. and, um, definitely feel like a physical response to, to talking about it. Um, how are you doing? Um, I definitely had the same reaction watching Mike have a, a reaction to what we were talking mm-hmm. about. Mm-hmm. Uh, and But the thing I felt the most was just this really strong feeling of hope because mm-hmm. people are doing the work and reaching out and that's how you get better. Mm-hmm. And it really, sometimes you are, you've got to be, this sounds so lame, but you really have to be the hero sometimes. And, uh, yeah, I mean, when I got that message, I was just, blo- I'm getting, uh, my heart is racing. My face <laughs> is turning red because I'm so emotional about it. But for real, I got that message and I just thought I am so filled with hope for this person mm-hmm. because they're on the right track. Mm-hmm. What about you, Mike? Well, you know, we're doing this episode. I was mainly, um, not mainly, but a lot. I had a lot of concern uh, for both of you, especially you, Grace. Mm -hmm. Uh, I think I've been having honest and challenging conversations about mental health for in public (laughs) for some time now. Mm -hmm. And, um, And I know there can be a weight, weightiness to hearing so many people's struggles and challenges. You know what you might know if you're might not know if you're watching or listening is how many questions we read mm-hmm. to get to a show. Mm-hmm. And so there's the questions you heard and there's the questions you didn't hear. And we have to read all of them. Someone involved with the show does. I didn't. They kind of insulate me from all that these days. But um <laughs> um Grace certainly read more questions than we covered today. And so, Grace, I was, you know, I had this kind of like, uh, as your friend, a concern for how much of a a weight that put on you because you're a sensitive and caring and empathetic person. Mm -hmm. 
Mm-hmm. Um, and the other thing, you know, for a long time, my work as Science Mike was kind of uh, being in process in front of everybody. Mm-hmm. Uh, going through the hard stuff with a spotlight on me. And I didn't know what else to do. So I thought maybe I could help people suffer less through a solidarity. Like, I don't have any answers, but let me tell you, uh, I am struggling too. And then I met a friend named Hillary McBride, now Dr. Hillary McBride, who's a therapist. And I noticed that she could like really get in to the work with somebody and be really present and be really moved and process those feelings and not shatter into a million pieces after the event like I always did. I get done with a show like this. Some Sometimes shows like this would be in person with hundreds of people in a room. And after the thing, I would just emotionally fall apart. And Hillary didn't. And it wasn't because Hillary was pushing her feelings down, it was because she was learning, one, to process her feelings as they happened, and two, to have boundaries and have resilience for herself. And as we did this show today, um, I felt a little proud of me mm-hmm. because I felt fully present and reflective and focused and aware of the question as it was asked and the feelings I had that I processed in response to the person's a question and the condition of their life and all the things they were describing. And I felt this kind of like resilient core uh, in myself. And I realized like, gosh, maybe some of that uh, wet plaster I referenced earlier in the show over the last year has actually started to cure. And I've, mm-hmm. I've set my life up in a way where Maybe for the first time ever, I have more access to uh, to some resiliency without um, deadening my emotions or 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 having to kind of pull myself away. I don't have to lean back from these questions. I was able to lean in fully on each one without mm-hmm. feeling at risk of my own um, emotional catastrophe or calamity. So. Um, now, I, this was actually a really personally affirming episode for me, both in the work that we do that I value so much, and I realized like, whoa, this might actually be a sustainable kind of work mm. for me to do, maybe for the first time. Wow. Wow. Therapy That's is good, y'all. Just keep doing it. Like, <laughs> it really if, you, if you want to hear this, the quick story that led to that, it was just... A quick 19 years of intensive therapeutic work. and Just a snap. <laughs> Just, all you need is a couple decades of hard work. Right. Yeah, right. Just get that under here. your belt and then you're good. Yeah. I mean, I kid, but I'm not. I'm not. I mean, really. It's, it's you know, I thought about the, <laughs> the, the question about, um, you know, sexual violence. And it's like, yeah, probably time, probably just a lot of patience and a lot of time. You know, however long mm-hmm. we dealt with something, probably need at least that long to get over it. So, mm-hmm. mm. well, thank you everybody for sending in your questions. Mm-hmm. And if you need a little bit of a decompression moment, you can join us um, tonight on our Discord. We, uh, Mike mentioned it in the ad read. 
We do have a Discord and I find it really relaxing when I have the time to show up to the after party and kind of process with everybody the discussion by playing games. Yes. <laughs> you know, by just like games. by playing games and and doing something lighthearted. So that would be my recommendation for anyone who wants to do that later. Next week, Stephanie Tate will be here as a guest host as we talk about uh, disability and disability advocacy. And we would love your questions to so keep sending those in. Um, and as you know, the Cozy Robot Show is made by the most talented and supportive team in the entire world. So I'd like to thank all the Cozy Robots, which is every single one who makes the show possible. Our show's producers, Tanner Hearn, Victory Palmazano, and Greg Nordine. Uh, the theme song and transition music was written and recorded by Madison McCarg and Macy McCarg. Production support provided by Amy Hill, social media management and show co-host Grace Vaughn. Design, Sydney Smith. Motion graphic design, Landon Satterfield. Set design, Jesse Lane. Interiors, wardrobe stylist and craft services, Jenny McCarg. And as always, the Cozy Robot Show is a production of Quantum Spin Studio. So thanks so much for joining us tonight. And we just can't wait to see you again next week. Take care, everybody. Bye. Be well. Bye. The Cozy Robot Show.